Because by knowing one lump of clay, dear one, we come to know all things made out of clay, that they differ only in name and form, while the stuff of which all are made is clay. As by knowing one gold nugget, dear one, we come to know all things made out of gold, that they differ only in name and form, while the stuff of which all are made is gold. So through that spiritual wisdom, dear one, we come to know that all of life is one. Of everything, he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll be talking about the Upanishads. For the quote of the day, I'd like to quote Emerson on the Upanishads. He says, They haunt me. In them I have found eternal compensation, unfathomable power, unbroken peace. Hopefully I can bring out even a tiny bit of the power and peace of these remarkable texts. Well, despite the fact that some of the recent books I've been reading have been spiritual and religious in nature, it's not at all my intent to teach anything about spirituality. I'm just a naive reader who wants to report what it's like for this naive reader to read great books. So, as usual, the result will be more of a self-portrait than a portrait of the Upanishads. But at this point in my life, the midpoint, I do find myself wanting to know more about what people have said about the ultimate questions, life and death. Not because I think I'll find out, quote-unquote, answers. Like Hamlet, I think that there will always be more things in heaven and earth than can be dreamt of in our philosophy. But nonetheless, a human is curious. And this human is curious to see what attempts at answers have been put forth in the past, as well as just to see what questions are worth asking, and maybe which questions aren't worth asking. So, in the Upanishads, like any other great book, I see less a source of quote-unquote objective fact than I do a kind of camaraderie and universality of wrestling with questions, living the questions, as Rilke says, wrestling with death and fear and grief. I think I mentioned Chogyam Trungpa in my last recording about the book of Chuangzi. Chogyam Trungpa was a very troubled and reckless, badly behaved Buddhist teacher, but despite this less than stellar life, his book, I think it's called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, has taught me a lot about what I should be aiming for and what I shouldn't be. His basic argument is that if we think we can accrue spiritual knowledge or experience, like people accrue houses or jets, then this is extremely counterproductive. There are no spiritual materials, no goodies, no teachings, and we shouldn't and can't really quest spiritual answers like people quest gold. And even the desire to quote-unquote make spiritual progress should be a rather suspicious desire, I think. You know, it's possible to feel proud of one's humility. And so without any expectations that the Upanishads will quote-unquote make me better or wiser or farther along the path, like I said, I'll just be a naive reader giving you an honest reaction to a great book. And though the term book doesn't really apply, I suppose, there is no denying that the Upanishads are one of the greatest things ever written. One of the greatest things I've ever read despite what we might think of them theologically or philosophically or metaphysically. These texts are very old. They are remote from me in time, in geography, in language, in metaphysics, in culture, but they are not remote from me in emotion, urgency, thought, experience. 
you know, all of the things that matter, the human condition. Things like time, geography, language, culture, these come and go. These are not central. The Upanishads depict with extreme clarity and invention and vividness and charisma the universal struggle of the human being, the struggle to understand this condition called being a human being, and our attempts at being home at home in the world. I won't pretend to be an expert. I've been reading the Upanishads for a few years and I've consulted several different versions and commentaries. Etymologically, the word Upanishad can be said to mean sitting down near, because these are more or less universally dialogues, conversations between various teachers and students. The most common counting lists 108 of these texts. Some people say 200, so there's a kind of apocrypha. 10 of them, or kind of 11, there's an 11th also, 10 or 11 have been given kind of extra canonical status. The earliest were written, you know, 8th, 7th century BC, so they're very old, probably oral for a long time first. This Vedanta tradition is pre-Buddhist, and these texts were written in Sanskrit. Just a word about the editions I'm using. I think the most readable version is this newish one by Eknath Eshwaran. It's definitely the most reader-friendly. A must-have book, I think, is this book called The Principal Upanishads by S. Radhakrishnan. It's a big, fat book. It's like 900 pages. And it's not exactly the most reader-friendly. It doesn't give you the, Upa- the text of the Upanishads in a kind of direct and uninterrupted way. But it does contain the most interesting and illuminating and multidisciplinary commentary. I mean, the commentary is just so astounding in this book. And it gives you the text in Sanskrit, or at least the transliteration of the Sanskrit text, if that's of interest. It's really just probably the best, the best book of the Upanishads that you could buy. So I say these texts are remote, but they're not really remote, if you think about it. Emerson, who has taken up permanent residence in my mind, has been called the mind of America. But Emerson himself was greatly shaped by the Upanishads. There's also, of course, T.S. Eliot, whose influence on 20th century English language poetry can't be overstated. He could read the original Sanskrit, was greatly influenced by the Upanishads, and you find Upanishadic thought in much of his poetry. The Wasteland, of course, and the Four Quartets. Schopenhauer thought the Upanishads one of the best books of the world. His influence on people like Nietzsche and Jung, and therefore much of 20th century philosophy and psychology, show that the influence of the Upanishads in the East and the West has been pervasive and constant, and lasts to the present day. And in a way, this transhistorical and global influence illustrates the central idea of the Upanishads, which is that all is one. All humans have a common source and a common nature. I get slightly provoked when I hear people claim that a certain great canonical author, quote, didn't write for X or Y group, you know, as if there's nothing in, say, Shakespeare or Dante or Cervantes that has anything to do with people in the Philippines or Tahiti or Ethiopia. This argument has never made much sense to me. Maybe the fundamental definition of greatness in any text is that it is about all humans, that it captures the human struggle, the struggle that is truly timeless, that transcends time and place and culture. The Upanishads are ours, and Shakespeare is theirs. There is one common humanity. And like I say, this wonderfully is perhaps the central message of all the Upanishads. They address, like much of the great religious texts of the world, what has been called the perennial philosophy, or the great hypothesis. You know, all religious texts in some way make some kind of version of the claim that there is a real you, 
inside of or beyond a false you. I think it's Tennyson who says that God is nearer to you than your hands and feet. You know, in the Christian texts, we hear Christ saying things like, the Father and I are one, or the kingdom of heaven is within you, or let your eye be single and then your whole body will be full of light. Yeah, In Islam, I think that the verse is, Allah is nearer to you than your own neck vein. So for all of their superficial differences, the Upanishads make a very similar claim. What I'll do in this recording is talk for a while about some of these central ideas that stood out to me as I was rereading it this time. And then after a while, I'll walk through a couple or a few of my favorite scenes or moments in the Upanishads that help concretize or make vivid these more spiritual ideas. And then I guess I'll end by reading my favorite passage of all, one that is really unforgettable and that is said by many people to, con to contain or distill the message of all of the Upanishads. I want to start with a tiny little, I guess, personal story. Here in our home, we've been dealing with the question of the self and personal identity lately in a way that <laughs> surprises me. My nine-year-old son has recently developed a fear of, quote, turning into my sister Magda. That's what he says. His sister's name is Magda. I, I feel like I'm turning into Magda, he'll say. And though this seems rather strange and hard to understand, it's a fear that is real to him, and it can sometimes pitch him into a real panic. And I remember being his age, and, you know, late afternoon, early evening, seeing it get dark outside, and suddenly being possessed by feelings of anxiety, the source of which I couldn't quite pinpoint or label exactly. So, you know, this feeling of his could be a constellation of triggers that he's trying to label as best he can. But it does have something to do with identity, and this notion of the self, and the self's permanence or illusoriness. And I think this is a very age-appropriate worry of his. He's now old enough to start noticing that he's not a fixed or a permanent thing, and neither are the people around him. Just yesterday, he, he said, I think I'm turning into Magda because Magda likes the guitar, and I'm starting to like the guitar. So he's terrified of this feeling of the lack of a permanent self. He and I have talked a lot about this fear over the past few weeks, and since I've been reading the Upanishads, I tried to devise a little Upanishad-inspired parable that would maybe give him some, perhaps, more ancient method of consolation. And I asked him to imagine a water droplet falling off a huge, very tall waterfall. This droplet in mid-flight doesn't know that it used to be part of a river, and it has no idea that when it that, that it will land, and therefore it has no idea that when it does land, it will rejoin this river. All it knows is that it's in freefall, so it's rightly terrified. And the water droplets around it, you could call these its family, you know. It sees these familiar water droplets falling down into a kind of dark and obscure abyss from which they never return. And this little droplet sees that it has a physical boundary, and this boundary has convinced it that it is separate, a separate and unique self, that there is an I am separate from what is. So it feels isolated and cut off and lonely. But, you know, one thing the Upanishads attempt to explain is that the idea, the sensation that this drop, or therefore any human being, the idea that a human being is separate, is false, is an illusion. The water droplet is made of the same substance as all the other drops, and is being moved by the same forces and will land in the same place, and the illusion that there is a boundary will fall away when the droplet is reabsorbed into the flow. Some aspects of this idea seem corroborated by, you know, science, and even personal experience. I think it's possible while alive 
while quote-unquote falling, to realize that just like this drop of water, there is no separateness. I mean, yeah, there is a layer of air separating one drop from another drop, one body, one human body from the next, but on what grounds do we say that a drop of water falling down a waterfall is not part of the river, is not part of the waterfall? It's absolutely a part of it. It doesn't make much sense to isolate one drop as something that is non-river, non-waterfall. It's a part of the whole. So without making any claims about our ultimate source or our ultimate destination, I think it's in a way quite commonsensical to say that we're clearly part of a whole, as this you know, my, maybe my most favorite moment of the Upanishads, Tattvam Asi, you are that, this mantra that I'll get to here before we close. You are that. Everything you look at, you are. Or as Whitman would say, every atom that belongs to me is good belongs to you. Or as a geneticist would say, like Richard Dawkins, there's this, this, there's this idea of the extended phenotype. Um, a beaver, in a way, is its dam. The beaver dam is an expression of the genetic code that is locked inside the beaver in all of the same ways that its fur is an expression of its DNA. So Isaac and I were having this conversation, my son Isaac and I were having this conversation, and he said, yeah, but I am separate, you know? And of course, I'm not going to pretend that he isn't. This is true. This is absolutely true. But how long could a human body survive outside of its environment, in a vacuum, or even an environment that it's not suited to, you know, naked in a desert or something? A human is as much the environment outside the body as the cells in it. It's a relationship. It's the symbiosis between the two that makes a human the human. I'm not sure if this little parable gave my son any solace at all, nor am I sure that it can be used to claim much about the ultimate truth about where we come from or where we're going. And I have felt real loss at the death of loved ones. And I don't think it's sufficient to say, well, it doesn't matter that this particular human body or water drop is gone, because at the end, all of the droplets will reunite and restore themselves into this universal oneness, and there will be no separateness at all. No, I think it does matter. What I miss is that particular person. I remember for some reason after my mom died thinking a lot about this scar on her wrist, and being <laughs> surprised at how distraught I was that I would never see it again. I love this moment in Bishop's poem, One Art where she says, even losing you, a joking voice, a gesture I loved. So it's the particularities of a person that we mourn. Their, their theirness, you know? And the thought that, we, well, maybe in a kind of atomic sense we'll be reunited with them doesn't really erase this sense of grief. I remember after my father died, we had to clean out his house, and he was a great reader of kind of detective spy novels. There are all these books that he had that I didn't want, my sisters didn't want, nobody wanted. So I boxed them all up and I took them to a Goodwill store. The Goodwill store was closed. There was a sign outside the door that said, you know, just leave donations by the door. This was a very small town. So I walk each box. There's, so I probably have six or seven boxes of these books. And one at a time, I walk them from my car to this sidewalk. I stack them beside this door. I think it's the early morning. And then I drive away. And this was a very difficult thing for me to do. I remember looking in the rearview mirror at the stack of boxes of books thinking, this is horrible. I'm just going to leave them there? And I think to say that, well, I don't need to worry because one day the atoms from me and those books and my father and Napoleon and 30 dead stars and, you know, 12 dinosaurs will all exist inside the gut of a rabbit. <laughs> And therefore, there is no such thing as separation. I mean, that could literally happen. 
<laughs> it's not even that far-fetched. So we can recognize on many levels, physical level, or if you'd like a metaphysical level, that yes, all in a way is one, indeed. This doesn't erase grief. It doesn't negate sorrow. It doesn't solve separation. However, so I've started with this kind of long disclaimer. However, I really do think that noticing certain obvious truths that the Upanishads emphasize, certain obvious truths about our interconnectedness, can, if not erase grief or solve sorrow, they can assuage it to a substantial degree. The Kata Upanishad actually uses this uh, metaphor of streams of water separating and then coming together. It says, As the rain on a mountain peak runs off the slopes on all sides, so those who see only the seeming multiplicity of life run after things on every side. As pure water poured into pure water becomes the very same, so does the self of the illuminated man or woman, Nachiketa, verily become one with the Godhead. There's this little evocation that sometimes starts several of the Upanishads. All this is full, all that is full. From fullness, fullness comes. When fullness is taken from fullness, fullness still remains. So separation somehow can't actually define existence. I also love this excerpt from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. May the Lord of Love, who projects himself into this universe of myriad forms, from whom all beings come and to whom all return, may he grant us the grace of wisdom. He is fire and the sun, and the moon and the stars. He is the air and the sea, and the creator Prajapati. He is this boy, he is that girl, he is this man, he is that woman, and he is this old man too, tottering on his staff. His face is everywhere. He is the blue bird. He is the green bird with red eyes. He is the thundercloud, and he is the seasons and the seas. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the source from whom the worlds evolve. Again, in the Kata Upanishad, we read, What is here is also there. What is there also here. Who sees multiplicity, but not the one indivisible self, must wander on and on from death to death. As the same fire assumes different shapes when it consumes objects differing in shape, so does the one self take the shape of every creature in whom he is present. As the same air assumes different shapes when it enters objects differing in shape, so does the one self take the shape of every creature in whom he is present. And there can be real benefits from looking at the world from this vantage point. I love this excerpt too. This is from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. It says, Two birds of beautiful plumage, comrades inseparable, live on the selfsame tree. One bird eats the fruit of pleasure and pain. The other looks on without eating. Forgetting our divine origin, we become ensnared in the world of change and bewail our helplessness. But when we see the Lord of love in all his glory, adored by all, we go beyond sorrow. To me, this really says it all in a nutshell. Inside of us, there are two birds. One of these birds eats of the fruit of pleasure and pain, is in the world, does get hooked on human emotions, loss, craving, desire, suffering. This is unavoidable. But inside us, there is a capacity, there is the second bird. There is a capacity inside of us to stand back and not get hooked on pleasure and pain, to not eat this fruit, and to remember our origins. If you call them divine, call them divine. 
but to not become ensnared in a world of change and to realize the second bird, the second capacity inside of ourselves, to see that there is something inside of us that goes beyond change and beyond sorrow can be remarkably consoling, even while that first bird is still in the moment of grief. So the second bird doesn't (laughs) kill or erase the first bird. Grief doesn't go away, but it just adds some ballast, some context, you know, a yin to a yang. It's a more complete and I think honest and manageable way of moving through the world. This image of the two birds comes up again in the Mundaka Upanishad. Like two golden birds perched on the self-same tree, intimate friends, the ego and the self dwell in the same body. The former eats the sweet and sour fruits of the tree of life, while the later looks on in detachment. As long as we think we are the ego, we feel attached and fall into sorrow. But realize that you are the self, the lord of life, and you will be freed from sorrow. When you realize that you are the self, supreme source of light, supreme source of love, you transcend the duality of life and enter into the unitive state. I think that's really beautiful. There is a capacity for detachment inside of us. You know, from everything as small as social media, we don't have to be attached to social media validation, to even perhaps profound grief while we're experiencing it, to not be defined by it to not reduce ourselves to that experience, to to remember that we have more expansive awareness and capacities than just simply that. If we think we are only the ego, the Upanishad tells us, if we think we are only the, the, the small, narrow, temporary, changing self, like my son, oh no, I'm changing, then yeah, that will be a life of sorrow. And we'll even see the sorrows of others in a new way too, I think. This is a way... The Upanishads emphasize ethical living. It might be tempting to assume that there's a kind of fatalism involved in this view of everything being part of one great self, as they say. Maybe my favorite way to emphasize the ethical implications of this way of looking at things was written by Schopenhauer. In his essay on the foundation of morality, he writes, How is it possible that suffering that is neither my own nor of my concern should immediately affect me as though it were my own? And with such force that it moves me to action, this is something really mysterious, something for which reason can provide no explanation, and for which no basis can be found in practical experience. It is nevertheless of common occurrence, and everyone has had the experience. It is not unknown even to the most hard-hearted and self-interested. Examples appear every day before our eyes of instant responses of the kind. Without reflection, one person helping another, coming to his aid, even setting his own life in clear danger for someone who he has seen for the first time, having nothing more in mind than that the other is in need and in peril of his life. Schopenhauer explains this by using the Supanishadic phrase, tatvam asi, that thou art that. We respond to the suffering of others because there is something deep in our souls, psyches, minds, bodies, that looks at external suffering and says, that's not not me. That is me, and I want it to end. Other people's suffering is our suffering. We should spend a few minutes talking about this word self that the Upanishads use over and over again. What is it? I won't pretend to know exactly. In his introduction, Radhakrishnan writes this, The Upanishad affirms that Brahman on which all else depends, to which all existences aspire, Brahman which is sufficient to itself, aspiring to no other, without any need, 
is the source of all other beings, the intellectual principle, the perceiving mind, life, and body. It is the principle which unifies the world of the physicist, the biologist, the psychologist, the logician, the moralist, and the artist, the hierarchy of all things and beings from soulless matter to the deity is the cosmos. Plato's world architect, Aristotle's world mover, belonged to the cosmos. If there is ordered development, progressive evolution, it is because there is the divine principle at work in the universe. He also says, it, the self, or Brahman, is not an object of thought or the result of production. It forms an absolute contrast to and is fundamentally different from things that are as is, in its way, nothingness. It can be expressed only negatively, or analogically. Then he refers to this moment in one of the Upanishads where a student says, Teach me, sir. The teacher was silent, and when addressed a second and a third time, the teacher said, I am teaching, but you do not follow. The self is silence. Uh, Like I said, this idea comes in many different flavors and creeds and religions. St. Bernard, you know, one of the most famous Christian mystics who we met at the top of Paradiso, when we were reading Dante, says, As a drop of water poured into wine loses itself and takes the color and savor of wine, so in the saints all human affections melt away by some unspeakable transmutation into the will of God. For how could God be all in all if anything merely human remained in man? The substance will endure but in another beauty, a higher power, a greater glory. St. Teresa, another famous Christian mystic, writes, Spiritual marriage is like rain falling from the sky into a river, becoming one and the same liquid, so that the river water and the rain cannot be divided, or it resembles a streamlet flowing into the ocean which which cannot afterward be dissevered from it. You find this idea in Plotinus. You find this idea in the Tao Te Ching. You find it in Shelley. In Shelley's poem Adonais to Keats, Shelley uses this idea to console himself. The one remains, the many change and pass. And then he says it's not Keats that has died. It's us that is that are dead, because we're still attached to the realm of change. The one remains, the many change and pass. Inside Hinduism, as far as I understand, there are differing schools of thought as to whether the self that is inside of us, which is referred to as Atman, is the same as the one self or the divine source or essence or form from which all things emanate, called Brahman. I, I obviously have no dog in this fight and no way of asserting one over the other, but there are clearly... Um, parts that feel themselves as separate parts, you know, water droplets or nine-year-old boys, while at the same time feeling connected to or parts of a greater whole. I love what Jung says. Jung takes this statement by Ignatius Loyola and kind of re- he kind of retranslates it into modern psychological terminology. And from when I first encountered this little snippet, it kind of blew me away and has stayed in my mind ever since. So the original one by Loyola was, was expressly Christian and used Christian dogmatic terminology. Jung kind of, I suppose you could say secularizes it, but the message, the core message, I think, is retained. This is Jung's language, a sentence that summarizes, I suppose, the purpose of life. Jung writes, man's consciousness was created to the end that it may, one, recognize its descent from a higher unity, two, pay due and careful regard to this source, three, execute its commands intelligently and responsibly, and four, thereby afford the psyche as a whole the optimum degree of life and development. I should read that again because it has so shockingly distilled, perhaps, core message not only of Christianity, but the Upanishads as well. Man's consciousness was created to the end that it may, one, 
recognize its descent from a higher unity. 2. Pay due and careful regard to the source. 3. Execute its commands intelligently and responsibly. And 4. Thereby afford the psyche as a whole the optimum degree of life and development. So back to those two birds. There is an individual ego, person, but without recognizing that it is the product of this higher unity, an effect of this other prior greater cause, I think it's in for more suffering than it needs to experience. Since I'm biased and prejudiced, I'm always thinking of ways to bring Shakespeare into every conversation. So I was thinking, where in Shakespeare do I hear tinges of the Upanishads? I found a couple moments here. The first is from Measure to Measure. Shakespeare writes, But man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority. This is so wonderful. Most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make the angels weep, who with our spleens would all themselves laugh mortal. We're most ignorant of this glassy essence that we have inside of us. This glassy essence. I love that so much. And why are we ignorant of this? Because inside of us we have what Shakespeare calls an angry ape, who is dressed in a little brief authority. Call this the ego, you know? Mostly the angry ape in my life has been in the driver's seat, or thinks he has been in the driver's seat. But I have this second thing, second capacity, the second bird, this glassy essence. That's my true essence, the kind of glassy, transparent, I suppose you could call it nothingness, which brings me to Richard II. In this play, the king has been deposed and is trying to comprehend this fact. How is it that a king who has been appointed by divine right, how is it that such a person, who is more than a person, can have been deposed? So Richard II contemplates, he says, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous, and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it, yet I'll hammer it out. My brain I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts. Thus play I in one person many people, and none contented. Sometimes am a king, then treasons make me wish myself a beggar, and so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then am I kinged again, and by and by think I am unkinged by Bolingbroke, and straight am nothing. But whatever I be, nor I nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased, till he be eased with being nothing. Man with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. Chuangzi and Laozi would remind us that this is the project of a life. To be eased, we have to learn to be eased with being nothing. It's more liberating to be nothing than something. The angry ape wants to be something and convinces us that we are something. We're a career or a title or a bank account or a physical appearance or a nine-year-old boy who doesn't like the guitar and if he senses that he likes the guitar, he's changing. Or we're a talent that we're proud of that defines us. Even virtues, I am extremely kind. That's who I am. Any of these things are actions that a man might play, as Shakespeare says elsewhere. Christ reminds us, whosoever would save his life shall lose it. Um, we have to be eased with being nothing. That water drop thinks it's a thing. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? It thinks it's a thing, and this illusion is the source of its grief. At this point, I'm reminded of Arjuna's question to Krishna in Book 2 of the Bhagavad Gita. He says, tell me, what do the enlightened ones look like? I'm slightly paraphrasing here. He says, how do they act? You know, he, he wants to be able to notice them. How do I notice them? In other words, are these just ideas, or can they actually affect the way I behave and move through the world? Not that I would know exactly, but the Upanishads offer some answers here too. I love this bit in the Isha Upanishad. It says, In dark night live those for whom the Lord is transcendent only. In dark night live those for whom the Lord is transcendent only. In night darker still for whom he is imminent only. But those for whom he is transcendent and imminent cross the sea of death with the imminent and enter into immortality with the transcendent. I think this is so wonderful. The divine, the real, the transcendent, the meaningful can't be only in the next life, can't be only beyond. If we live like that, the, this Upanishad teaches us we live in darkness. But nor can this world be all, nor can we say there is no transcendent, there is no other perspective. It's an even worse form of darkness. What is needed, this little verse tells us, is being able to see both, being able to live in both spheres. Every once in a while I get glimpses into this. Sometimes I'm, you know, doing the most mundane things, you know, driving to pick up my kids from school, for example, couldn't be more mundane. And if I ask myself a question like, what's wrong with this moment right now? Sometimes the answer, shockingly, is nothing. There's absolutely nothing with sitting at this red light being slightly bored. There's nothing else that could be better. There's nothing else that's beyond this. I think this is what poets have been trying to remind us of for a long time. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, wrote William Carlos Williams, glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. This is it. It meaning what you have been searching for, the thing that you have been craving, awareness, enlightenment, redemption, salvation, consolation, reality, meaning, whatever word, this is it. Sitting on the couch with a slight headache, with a bunch of dishes still ahead of you to do, that's it too. This is the moment. This is the culmination of the journey. This, you, you, know, you are in the only paradise that there is. In his commentary, Radhakrishnan has a wonderful thing to say about this. He says, he says, the supreme is neither of these in the sense that he is not also the other. If we identify the supreme with the manifest, it would be pantheism in the sense that the whole of the divine nature finds expression in the manifested world, leaving nothing over, and it is a wrong view. Again, if the world of becoming were not there, it would all disappear in what would seem a world of undifferenced abstraction. Within the depths of the spirit there is unfolded before us the drama of God's dealings with man and man's with God. Unity and multiplicity are both aspects of the supreme, and therefore the nature of the supreme is said to be inconceivable. The water droplet is unique, but it is also united. There is unity, that's the truth, but there is also multiplicity, that's the truth too. It's a paradox, and therefore we can't exactly conceive it. I think it was Ramdas who said, to be enlightened, you have to remember only two things. The first is your true inner nature, and the second is your social security number. <laughs> Another version of that I've heard is your true inner nature or where you parked the car, yeah? So 
you ha- you have to be in the world and live a life and do chores. I think it was Dogen, the great Zen Japanese master, who wrote that enlightenment is like regular life, just two inches off the ground. So enlightened beings, I think, again, not, not that I would know, of course, but from what I read, they still take out the trash and they may even still get angry or, you know, weep, you know? That's why I love Chuangzi. In that book, we see Taoist masters lamenting. Um, so we can't abolish the angry ape, but let's not let it eclipse our glassy essence either. Two inches off the ground. It's, enlightenment is just like regular life but two inches off the ground. The ape doesn't go away, but you're slightly detached from the ape. I've talked a lot about the ideas in the Upanishads, but not, I haven't perhaps given you sufficient flavor of what they're like in themselves. So we can just hit a couple of those highlights now. The Kata Upanishad is a beloved Upanishad for obvious reasons. It's, it's a very wonderful story about a boy who has a conversation with death, the king of death. There's so much to love here. I love how spirited and how much bravado the boy has. This is from the Kata Upanishad. The, this boy's, this young man's name is Nachiketa. Nachiketa went to Yama. Yama is the king of death. Nachiketa went to Yama's abode, but the king of death was not there. He waited three days. When Yama returned, he heard a voice say, so this is Nachiketa talking to the king of death. When a spiritual guest enters the house like a bright flame, he must be received well with water to wash his feet. Far from wise are those who are not hospitable to such a guest. They will lose all their hopes, the religious merit they have acquired, their sons and their cattle. So I just love how he's the typical kind of, um, typical but also charming haughtiness of a teenager who is slightly chastising the king of death. It takes a lot of guts. He asks death for knowledge. So so the story is that, yet yeah, Yama, the king of death, feels horrible for making Nachiketa wait for three days and being such an inhospitable host. So to try to make up for this, Yama, the king of death, says, I'll give you any three boons that you like, any three wishes. Nachiketa uses the first one to wish that his father's anger will be appeased. That's a long backstory. He uses the second one to ask about this fire sacrifice. The king of death says, okay, I'll teach you about that. The third boon that Nachiketa asks for is this. Nachiketa speaks, When a person dies, there arises this doubt. He still exists. He still exists, some say. He does not, say others. I want you to teach me the truth. This is my third boon. Yama, the king of death, says, This doubt haunted even the gods of old, for the secret of death is hard to know. Nachiketa, ask me for some other boon and release me from my promise. I'm reminded of that story in Ovid's Metamorphosis of Phaeton. Um, who had to promise his son, who promised his son anything his son wanted. And when the son said, let me drive your chariot, Phaeton instantly regretted making that promise. So in all these traditions, there's this wonderful detail of gods making promises that they can't fall back on. Yama won't relent. He says, no, this is my third boon. I'm not going to change my mind. And Yama teaches him about the nature of the self. The truth of the self cannot come through one who has not realized that he is the self. The intellect cannot reveal the self beyond its duality of subject and object. Those who see themselves in all and all in them help others through spiritual osmosis to realize the self themselves. Those who know they are neither body nor mind but the immortal self, the divine principle of existence, find the source of all joy and live in joy abiding. Yama says, The self cannot be known through study of the scriptures nor through the intellect, 
nor through hearing discourses about it. The self can be attained only by those whom the self chooses. In the secret cave of the heart, two are seated by life's fountain. The separate ego drinks of the sweet and bitter stuff, like the sweet disliking, liking the sweet, disliking the bitter, while the supreme self drinks sweet and bitter, neither liking this nor disliking that. The ego gropes in darkness while the self lives in light. So declare the illuminated sages and the householders who worship the sacred fire in the name of the Lord. May we light the fire of Nachiketa that burns out the ego and enables us to pass from fearful fragmentation to to fearless fullness in the changeless whole. Yama says, That through which one enjoys form, taste, smell, sound, touch, and sexual union is the self. It's the kind of spark of life, I guess you could call it. That which makes the machine of the human on, alive. Can there be anything not known to that who is the one in all? No one, K-N-O-W, to know it, no one, no all. To know that as consciousness is to go beyond sorrow. I like this moment because it's very simple. It's just being aware. If you can taste something, if you can feel grief, if you can feel bored, if you can smell something or hear a sound, you are you already have this capacity. That is the self, the thing that enables you to experience, to sense, to think. There's nothing else to attain or reach for. In another Upanishad, we read this. A husband loves his wife not for her own sake, dear, but because the self lives in her. Children are loved not for their own sake, but because the self lives in them. And here again, I, I kind of stub my toe on moments like this. I make no claims about what ultimate truth or reality is. How could I possibly know? How could anyone possibly know? But from this angry ape's perspective, (laughs) from this ego-driven bird who is attached to the fruits of pleasure and displeasure, I think, you know, my experience tells me that it is the particularities of that person for which we grieve. And I think this is okay in a way, you know, to live is to grieve. And I often wonder if chasing after promises of a kind of post-grief unity or oneness that maybe we can never attain, I wonder if that chase is the source of suffering. Suffering might be assuming that there is a path out of suffering, which is why I love that moment in the Brothers Karamazov when Father Zasima is confronted by this woman who has recently lost her child, and this woman is looking for some kind of message of consolation. And Father Zasima says to her, Woman, weep and be not comforted. Just because I've been rambling on for a long time now, I'll skip over that wonderful moment in the Bridhadaranyaka Upanishad when that Eliot stole for the wasteland. Da data dayatvam. What the thunder said. It's an interesting moment because it emphasizes an ethical life, the need for an ethical life. Da da da, the heavenly voice of the thunder repeats this teaching. Be self-controlled. Give. Be compassionate. Now, let's go to my absolute favorite bit. In the Chandogya Upanishad, we read the story of Shveta Ketu. And for me, this was a truly astounding and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say life-changing story. It's not so long. I think I'll read it to you. Shveta Ketu was Udalaka's son. When he was 12, his father said to him, It is time for you to find a teacher, dear one, for no one in our family is a stranger to the spiritual life. So Shveta Ketu went to a teacher and studied all the Vedas for 12 years. At the end of this time, he returned home proud of his intellectual knowledge. You seem to be proud of all this learning, said Udalaka, 
But did you ask your teacher for that spiritual wisdom which enables you to hear the unheard, think the unthought, and know the unknown? What is that wisdom, father? asked the son. Udalaka said to Shvetaketu, As by knowing one lump of clay, dear one, we come to know all things made out of clay, that they differ only in name and form, while the stuff of which all are made is clay. As by knowing one gold nugget, dear one, we come to know all things made out of gold, that they differ only in name and form, while the stuff of which all are made is gold. As by knowing one tool of iron, dear one, we come to know all things made out of iron, that they differ only in name and form, while the stuff of which all are made is iron. So through that spiritual wisdom, dear one, we come to know that all of life is one. My teachers must not have known this wisdom, said Shvetaketu, for if they had known, how could they have failed to teach it to me? Please instruct me in this wisdom, father. Yes, dear one, I will, replied the father. In the beginning was only being, one without a second. Out of himself he brought forth the cosmos and entered into everything in it. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is the inmost self, he is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. This is Tattvam Asi in Sanskrit. One of the four Mahavakyas, which are formulaic utterances that are said to sum- summarize or distill all of the Upanishadic wisdom. The others are the self is Brahman, consciousness is Brahman, I am Brahman. I'll continue with Shvetaketu's story. Please, Father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. Let us start with sleep. What happens in it? When one is absorbed in dreamless sleep, he is one with the self, though he knows it not. We say he sleeps, but he sleeps in the self. As a tethered bird grows tired of flying about in vain to find a place of rest, and settles down at last on its own perch, so the mind, tired of wandering about, hither and thither, settles down at last in the self, dear one, to which it is bound. All creatures, dear one, have their source in him. He is their home. He is their strength. When a person departs from this world, dear one, his speech merges in mind, his mind in prana, prana in fire, and fire in pure being. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is the inmost self, he is the truth, he is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please tell me, Father, more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. As bees suck nectar from many a flower and make their honey one, so that no drop can say, I am from this flower or that, all creatures, though one, know not they are that one. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, Father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. As the rivers flowing east and west merge in the sea and become one with it, forgetting that they were ever separate rivers, so do all creatures lose their separateness when they merge at last into pure being. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. Strike at the root of a tree. It would bleed, but still live. Strike at the trunk. It would bleed, but still live. Strike at the top. It would bleed, but still live. The self as life supports the tree, which stands firm and enjoys the nourishment it receives. If the self leaves one branch, that branch withers. If it leaves a second, that too withers. If it leaves a third, that again withers. Let it leave the whole tree, the whole tree dies. Just so, dear one, when death comes and the self departs from the body, the body dies, but the self dies not. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. 
You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, Father, tell me more about the self. Yes, dear one, I will. Bring me a fruit from the Nyagroda tree. Here it is, sir. Break it. What do you see? These seeds, Father, all exceedingly small. Break one. What do you see? Nothing at all. That hidden essence you do not see, dear one. From that, a whole Nyagroda tree will grow. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything, he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, Father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. Place this salt in water and bring it here, tomorrow morning. The boy did. Where is that salt? The father asked. I do not see it. Sip it. How does it taste? Salty, father. And here? And there? I taste salt everywhere. It is everywhere, though we see it not. Just so, dear one, the self is everywhere, within all things, although we see him not. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything, he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will. I love this relationship. The child is so wonderfully curious, so willing to learn. And the father is so patient and so willing to teach. Unlike me, my son is into chemistry these days and asks questions like, can you Google the chemical formula of, and then he names some complicated thing. I have no idea what this is or how. The angry ape in me loses patience. You know, not so Udalaka. It's a real model for how to interact with other people, I think. Please, Father, tell me more about this, dear one. I will, Udalaka said. As a man from Gandhara, blindfolded, led away and left in a lonely place, turns to the east and west and north and south and shouts, I am left here and cannot see, until one removes his blindfold and says, There lies Gandhara, follow that path. And thus informed, able to see for himself, the man inquires from village to village and reaches his homeland at last. Just so, my son, one who finds an illuminated teacher attains to spiritual wisdom in the self. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything, he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Please, Father, tell me more about this self. Yes, dear one, I will, Udalaka said. When a man is dying, his family all gather around and ask, Do you know me? Do you know me? And so long as his speech has not merged in mind, his mind in prana, prana in fire, and fire in pure being, he knows them all. But there is no more knowing when speech merges in mind, mind in prana, prana in fire, and fire in pure being. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything, he is the inmost self. He is the truth. He is the self-supreme. You are that, Shvetaketu. You are that. Then Shvetaketu understood this teaching. Truly, he understood it all. So hopefully that gives you a flavor of the very personal, intimate, colloquial dialogue nature of these texts, but also their their incantatory power. You can hear these repeated sections of the verses kind of mounting in a kind of crescendo-like musical power. I can only imagine what they sound like in Sanskrit being recited. must be very powerful. When I read this, I like to think of a person that I love, the face of a person I love, and it's easy to imagine that this face is that, that being the self-supreme, the transcendent Brahman, whatever we want to call it, God, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's easy to see the image of God in the face of a person that you love. But if they, if the image of God is in the face of a person you love, then we have to admit that it's in that neighbor that we hate who mows his lawn at five in the morning. That neighbor is also that tatvamasi, you know? And so is a pencil, 
and so is a red wheelbarrow. What we long for, whatever we want to call it, transcendence, reality, the divine, is not only all around us, but already inside of us. Even the longing itself is divine, in a way. You know, what a miracle. Here I am longing for things. It must be that, too. Whatever it is, it must be that, too. You know, poets from all over the world have gotten glimpses of this. Blake writes, to see the world in a grain of sand, and heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. This is what he means, I think. He goes on in that same poem, in less celebrated lines, to write things like, Each outcry from the hunted hare a fiber from the brain does tear. We are that hunted hare. That's why it tears a fiber in our brain, because we are it. In the book of Fell, Blake writes, Does the eagle know what is in the pit, or wilt thou go ask the mole? And I think the eagle, the Upanishads would say that the eagle is the pit and is the mole. Again, back to this idea of the extended phenotype. The eagle can't exist without the mole in the pit. It is that. I'm going to be reading a poem of the day by Kabir in a minute here, but I'm going to kind of cheat and sneak one more in at the very end of this. This poem is by Rumi. It's called Love Dogs, translated by Coleman Barks. One night a man was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with praising, until a cynic said, So, I've heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw Kadir, the guide of souls, in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Because I've never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. Not that I could summarize my uh, experience with the Upanishads, let alone the Upanishads themselves. This naive reader's reaction to this text is and has always been one of extreme awe for its ability to point out so clearly the ways in which the angry ape of the ego gets so much of my attention, when in reality, you know, as the perennial hypothesis states, there is something else in there, a glassy essence, a self, a connection to a higher unity. I make no claims to know what this actually is, or to have any access, any glimmer, any glimmer of a glimmer into quote-unquote ultimate reality or ultimate truth. But I love how much the Upanishads can help me, that there is nowhere to go but here, that I am that for which I have been searching, and so is everyone else. Today's poem of the day is by Kabir. He is a, I think, 16th, 15th century mystical poet. Both Hindus and Muslims claim him as their own. There's a legend that when Hindus and Muslims gathered to perform their own unique funeral rites, they removed the shroud covering Kabir's body. And instead of a corpse, there were simply flowers. In this poem, I can hear a lot of influence from the Upanishads. It's called the Temple of the Lord. As oil is in the oil seed, and fire is in the flint, so is the Lord within thee unrevealed. 
Follow thy master's simple and true instructions. Keep vigil strict at midnight, and so find him. As fragrance is within the flower's blossom, so is the Lord within thee unrevealed. But as the musk deer searches for musk in forest grass, so does man search for him outside and finds him not. As the pupil is within the eye itself, so is the Lord within the body. But fools know not this simple fact, and search for him elsewhere. As air pervades all space, but none can see it, so does the Lord pervade the body, but he remains to each one unrevealed, since the lodestone of the heart is not attached to him. O man, the object of supremest value, for which you search throughout the world, is here within you, but the veil of illusion ever separates you from him. Tear the veil boldly asunder and you will find him. My Lord is living in each human being. There is no bridal bed without the bridegroom. But blessed is the body in which he reveals himself. As fragrance is in the flower, so is the Lord within thee. But he reveals himself in his beloved saints. That is all you need to know. Go forth and meet them. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed that brief glimpse into these remarkable texts. I'm not exactly sure what's coming next. I'm toying with the idea of recording a couple general discussions about the nature of poetry and writing poetry. Also, I think I see Hamlet approaching me quite quickly on the horizon. But in the meantime, happy reading.